Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the opportunity to worship you. For we know that you have created us for that very purpose. We thank you that in Christ we are able to come into your presence and give you the praise and honor and glory that you deserve and desire. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, in Christ alone, knowing that he has paid the debt for our sins so that we might be set free from them and so that we might pursue holiness. Even this day, we know that we need cleansing by your Spirit and your Word. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our many sins. We pray, Father, that you would fill our minds with truth as we study your Word and understand the seriousness of life. We pray, Father, that you would guide us and direct us in your Scripture this day and give us the insight we need to rightly apply it to our lives. And we as Christians would be faithful to the task that you have called us to, to be ambassadors for Christ and to proclaim your gospel to those who need to know the truth and that we would press the truth upon them and that your spirit might take it and drive it into their hearts to bring them to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to send your spirit to work in the lives who are unconverted, that you might open their eyes to see the truth and understand it and receive it even this day as your word is proclaimed. We thank you, Father, for our sister churches, and we pray that you would bless them as they worship throughout the world this day and that many would be brought into your kingdom. We thank you, Father, for your common grace that you show so many this day and that through that common grace that they would be led to particular grace to understand that you are a gracious and merciful God, saving your people from their sins. We pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us this day, you know the reason the need. We thank you, Father, for your protection, even as Millie and Courtney were coming to church today and how you protected them to where they could have been seriously injured in the wreck. We thank you that you spared them. We pray for others, Father, who are away, that you would give them safety. Bless them in the places that they worship this day. Bring them back to us quickly. Be with those who need their, your healing hand upon their body, Father. Be pleased to restore their health, if this is your will. If not, we pray that you comfort them, Father, as only you can. We pray, Father, that all that would be said and done this day would be pleasing in your sight. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. Verse 19, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fair sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fed fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. 
the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is conformed and you comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great guff fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. They also come to this place, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the grave, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises. From the dead. As most of you know, often between two book series, I will preach a series of sermons that I have found in Scripture that I believe will benefit us as a church. We have looked at two sermons on the gospel, and I want to look at Luke chapter 19, I mean Luke 16, 19 through 31 for a few weeks, and then we will move from there to the office of the elder. And then during our season of Christmas, we will be looking at the incarnation of Christ. And then I will begin an Old Testament book since we just looked at New Testament last month. So we want to begin this series. Years ago, I read a book entitled A Great Guff. And it was written by a man giving the sermons of Brownlow North. And in his introduction, he describes Brownlow North's life. And he says these things about Brownlow North, who was raised in a very wealthy Christian family. And he professed the religion of his family, but he distinguished himself from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, who were all involved in the ministry as clergymen. He distinguished himself by calling himself an athlete. And he took great joy and pleasure in riding horses, in shooting, in billiards, and dancing. And his heart was set on these things, and he seldom thought about death and the future. Except for one time when a dear friend of his was killed beside him by a stagecoach. But that particular impression upon him did not last very long. He was very lighthearted. For the first 44 years of his life, he only desired the pleasures of this world and never really did anything good for his fellow man. From 1835 to 54, 
He spent his time in Scotland renting a room, doing his great pleasure of shooting gout and catching salmon. Being wealthy, he was able to simply do the things that fulfilled his desires in his life. He was not a very kind man. He seldom ever even gave to the poor. On one occasion, he did give a woman who had lost her cow five shillings. Now, how much is five shillings? Well, back then, it was less than what we would say 35 cents. But he thought that was a great contribution that he had made to her. During his time, his greatest kindness, he thought, was hosting at the end of the shooting year a dance and a supper for those who had helped him during his time when he would go out and shoot gout. And he expected them to be very thankful for this party that he would give to them. And he always looked forward to them saying to him at the end of the party, of course it was early morning and many of them were tipsy, God bless you. He would take great joy and pleasure in hearing them say those words to him. But in 1854, it pleased God to finally open his eyes to the truth and change his heart and he saw that it would profit him nothing if he gained the whole world and lost his soul. It was one evening in November when this realization came and broke in upon him. That night he was playing cards in his rented house and all of a sudden he was seized with a sense of illness. He thought that he was going to die. And he said to his son, take me to my room. I'm like a dead man. Take me upstairs. And when he was upstairs, he threw himself on his bed thinking he was about to die. And he said... Now, what will my 44 years of following the devices of my own heart profit me? In a few minutes, I shall be in hell. And what good will all of these things do for me, for which I have sold my soul? Well, in God's providence... His illness soon passed. But he was not like many. Many would simply dismiss the things that they had thought about. No, his life was changed. He was a changed man. His outlook was completely changed. Now, the being of God was most important to him. The immortality of the soul and the salvation through Christ alone became a great reality to him. His habits were changed immediately. He learned to pray, to love God's Word. His entire purpose in life had been radically changed. He desired no longer to live to please himself, but now he had a purpose in life. He wanted to worship and serve the living God, His Creator and Redeemer. He experienced what everyone experiences who becomes a Christian. He experienced being born again. 
Not only did he become a Christian, but like Paul, he became a preacher immediately. Five years later, he came to Northern Ireland. And God was pleased to send him there to proclaim the gospel. And as a result, God spiritually awoke the people in Northern Ireland with a great spiritual awakening. Men and women who had no concern about their souls and their lives suddenly became aware that they were sinners in need of salvation. Churchgoers who had sat thoughtlessly for years under the preaching of sermons suddenly were woke to the reality of the eternal world and ministers began to preach with authority. Factory workers carried Bibles to their benches. Taverns were closed and began a new trade of selling religious books. In short, the Holy Spirit worked upon Northern Ireland to bring a great revival upon men's heart. And Brownlow North knew what it was to be arrested by the grace of God. And he knew personally that reality of the concern of multitudes and what they were experiencing because he had been there. He understood being rich and he understood how the rich often treat the poor. And that's one reason why he wrote this series of sermons on this particular passage found here in Luke chapter 16. Because he understood that he himself at one time was that rich man and he could have easily been sent to hell and he spend eternity there in hell. But that God had graciously changed his heart and delivered him from his sins. As he continued to preach the truth of God and preach the sermons based upon this particular passage, God used it to bring many into the kingdom of God. During the year 1859, in the months of July and August, many came to hear him preached. And during those months, it was amazing what God did. There was an intense hunger to hear the Word of God. They had to move services to open air because so many showed up. He preached to congregations from 4,000 to 12,000, and many of those came to Christ. It is said that during this great awakening that over 100,000 people came to know Christ. Now let me add that that was done also without what is called the altar call. These people came to Christ sitting there in the pew and they made it known that Christ had saved them. And many of the sermons that came out of Luke chapter 16, he used, God used that is, to bring men to Christ. And in those sermons, he spoke to the people about the shortness of life, that this present world isn't our home, and that there is none righteous, no, not one. And we have to understand that we are all by nature like brown, low, north. Before we were born again, we were in the same fix that he is in. 
We were in love with the pleasures of this world. And few, if any, really thought of eternity and what lies ahead of us. One of the reasons so many people remain unconverted in our day is because sermons based on this passage are no longer preached. Seldom do you ever hear the word hell from the pulpit. Sin is overlooked. And a call to repentance is old-fashioned to many pastors today. And there is one that is pleased with those things. And that, of course, is Satan. He wants men to continue to enjoy the pleasures of this world and stay on the path that leads to destruction, to an eternal hell. Yes, there is a word, hell, that is found in Scripture There is a hell, and many, many at this very moment are in that place of torment. Do you realize that 1.8 people die every second? That means that 107 people die every minute in the world. That's 6,392 every hour. In other words, while we are here in this building, there will be over 6,000 people that have died. That is 153, 424,000 every day. 56 million people die every year. If you are allowed by God to live 70 years, 3.9 billion people would have died in your lifetime. Now being generous, and I think very generous, 20% of those who die would probably be Christians. That's every day 120,000 die and go to an eternal hell. Did you hear that? 120,000 people die every day and go to an eternal hell. But those numbers really and truly don't disturb us as they ought to disturb us, do they? They really don't. We don't really think about that. We don't really think about someone dying unless it's someone that we know. Unless we hear of something that has happened, it doesn't get our attention. But it does usually get our attention for a short time if it's especially a young person. But we all think that we have plenty of time to enjoy life. We don't like to think about death. We have even been confronted this very moment. While Courtney and Millie were coming to church this morning and hit by another vehicle, they could have entered into eternity. We know of others that have quickly entered in eternity. Now, on the other hand, Satan seeks to deceive us. And he tells us not to worry about death. 
Just enjoy life. Have fun. Don't waste your life on religious things. Live it up. Push it to the limit. Do what your heart desires to do. But don't be fooled or deceived by Satan like the rich man was. Thinking that you have plenty of time. One reason Jesus told this story is to warn us that there is a hell. And that many will spend eternity in that hell. So as we look at the story, I pray that you will give your undivided attention and that you will pray that God will use this story to cause you to make sure that you are not on that path that leads to destruction. But if we discover that we are, that the Holy Spirit would wake us up and bring us to true repentance and saving faith in Christ and Christ alone. This story set before us gives us two completely different situations. Of course, Jesus often did this in the gospel. He often gave us opposites. He gives us the lost and the saved, the sheep and the goat, the seeing and the blind, the wheat and the tares. And here we have the poor and the rich and heaven and hell. First, we see that the rich man died and went to hell, and the beggar died and went into the bosom of Abraham, which is represented of heaven. But why did these two men go to two different places, these two places that are opposite from one another? No one was ever lost simply because he was rich. Neither was any man ever saved simply because he was poor and miserable. See, both men lived in this world in pleasing place that God had placed them. God entrusted both of them with certain talents, which they were able to use for the glory and honor of God. Their position in life did not determine their future in eternity, many rich men have gone to heaven, and many poor men have entered into hell. What they did in their life eventually determined the place they would spend in eternity. The difference between these two men could not have been greater. For one ended up in heaven and the other ended up in hell. While on earth one appeared to have everything, while the other appeared to have nothing at all. Life on earth is passing. And all things possessed are gone. And our eternal home is fixed. The great question for us is not, what is our position here on earth? But are we striving to glorify our position in which He has placed us in? The catechism, first question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is why God created us. 
And of course, we know that sin hinders us from that. And until we are set free from our sin, from the bondage of sin, we cannot glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But as Paul puts it, whatever you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is our calling, to do every single thing that we do to the glory of God. Now the great question for us is why did these two men go to two different places? Why did God show His electing love to one and not to the other? Both men had their advantages and their disadvantages. One more than the other. Both had their temptations. Both had their trials. If not rightly dealt with by prayer and striving against these things, their soul would be destroyed. It's possible for the rich, most devout, to glorify God here on earth and go to heaven. And it's also possible for those who are miserable, afflicted, better beggars to dishonor God on earth and die and go to hell. This truth must be understood by both groups of people. But seek to plead their position in life as their reason for being ungodly is a lie from Satan. That their life position may be impossible for them to be a Christian is also a lie from Satan. The rich and poor people will make all kinds of excuses for not being saved, but alike reveal their soul-destroying ignorance and blindness when asked, Why will you not repent and trust in Christ and Christ alone? I've heard all kinds of excuses over my 40-something years of being a pastor from people. They will say things such as, well, that church is full of hypocrites. Or they'll say something like, I'm better than most of those people that go to church. Or all the church really wants is my money. I don't need to go to church to worship God. I can do it at home. I don't have time to go to church. Many, many excuses will be given by people. But yet, God will not accept any of them. Not until a person sees that he is in his sin and that he cannot save himself, that he is a poor sinner in need of grace, he cannot be saved. So therefore, it is our responsibility to make sure that we press upon their people their need of seeking Christ as Lord and Savior, that they cannot save their self by any action of their own. Now, both groups seek to justify their actions in rejecting the gospel. Now, as we look at this particular story, I want to first give a little background concerning what Jesus says here. And we need to go all the way back to verses 14 
and 15 to be able to understand the setting that we have here. He says in verse 14, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derived him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we see that one of the groups that Jesus is speaking to is the Pharisees. We also see that in verse 1 of 16 that he also said to his disciples. So we see that his disciples are gathered there as well. If you go back to chapter 15, you see also in verse 1, Then all the tax collectors, sinners drew near to him to hear, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, So we see that there are a number of groups of people that are listening to what Jesus is saying here in this particular passage. Now these groups that he's speaking to, some are religious and some are irreligious. And of course he's speaking to all of them and he's trying to tell both groups what needs to happen in their life. But yet here we have Jesus speaking more to the religious people and seeking to point out to them that they themselves who think they're going to heaven because of who they are need to re-examine their self. And these Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for preaching against their covetousness, for it was their great sin. Matthew Henry says, Many that make a great profession of religion have much knowledge and abound in the exercise of devotion, are yet ruined by the love of the world, nor does anything harden their heart more against the word of Christ. So we see that Jesus is speaking about how riches are used against those who are religious, who have much knowledge. The Greek word there in that particular verse, derived or ridiculed, is an expression of utter scorn that these religious men showed to Jesus. They showed distrain to him. To the Pharisees, Jesus' word were a reproach. They laughed at him for going against their own belief. They were resolved to hold fast to their sin of covetousness, revealing that their hearts were hardened against the Word of God. And this is so common for those who are unwilling to be ruled by the Word of God. So instead of submitting to the Word of God, they mock the Word of God. First, they will reject Scripture by seeking to point out that there's errors in Scripture. They will say that there's contradictions in Scripture and that they're only following, of course, their father, Satan. Remember at the very beginning, that's what Satan actually did to Eve. When he came to Eve and he said, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no. 
God did not say that. That was not the words of God. And that's what Eve should have said back to Satan. Satan, you are twisting what God said. He did not say that we cannot eat from any tree in the garden. Matter of fact, what God said was, of every tree of the garden we may freely eat, Satan. So therefore, get thee behind me, Satan. Get out of here. I'm going to enjoy what God has blessed me with, all of these trees, and I will feast upon them. But she did not do that. We must remember that Satan is a liar. He's been a liar from the very beginning, and he continues to lie and fill minds with lies. As Jesus said in John 8, verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now second, they will often say things like, well, that's your interpretation of the scripture. That's not my interpretation. I don't believe what you're saying. I like my interpretation better. I kind of thought of that yesterday as we were at our meeting to train the counselors for the crusade that is coming up. And when uh, the organizer asked for all the pastors to raise their hand, I was looking around and uh, there was a lady that raised her hand. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting that she thinks she's a pastor. I mean, how can a woman be the husband of one wife? Now, of course, in our day, people have twisted that around to where that's a possibility, and that makes issues even worse if they are called a pastor. But also, Scripture clearly states that a church is to have men in the place of authority. That men are not, or women are not, clearly it states that women are not to have authority over men that they are to be submissive to the Word of God. And they are not to teach men by having authority. And then finally, I think of the passage, what Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, when he says to women, The woman shall keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, as the law also says, And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husband at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now that doesn't mean y'all can't speak during your fellowship time and other times and even in your Sunday school room. What that is simply pointing out is that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority in cooperative worship. That men are to lead in cooperative worship, not women. So we see quite clearly that there are those who seek to twist Scripture and to justify their sinfulness. And we must be wise and we must be able to give them an answer from Scripture. Now, back to this particular passage here in Luke 16, in this context, Jesus reveals the seriousness of His teaching. That His teaching demands a response. And that one of those responses is God's judgment. 
Now Jesus draws back the curtain and allows hearers to see and hear about the end results of those who reject Him. Hear about those who are worldly, hypocrites, who reject His teaching. And they will learn that what He highly esteems, or they highly esteem, is an abomination before God. And they will be cast into an utter hell if they do not repent of their sins and look to Christ. They will be cast in an utter hell because they have rejected the teachings of Christ. They will learn that what they highly esteemed is sinful. Now this illustration isn't like Jesus uses in his other parables. Matter of fact, Brownlow North did not believe that this was a parable. Now, I'm not going to get into that particular argument of whether it is a parable or not, but there are things in this particular story that would indicate that it's possibly not a parable because he doesn't use the similarities that he does in other parables in comparing it to the things of this world. For instance, in the parables that just precede this, in speaking about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, we see that a lot of those are similarity to things that we can understand in this world. But here in this particular story, we see that Jesus deals directly with the spirituality of the lost man or the rich man and the poor man. And it's very descriptive in how God's wrath is revealed against the unregenerate and God's saving grace is revealed against those who are in Christ. Now, even though it may be uh, a story, we would probably say that it's not an actual story of someone that was actually called Lazarus and Another one, of course, he doesn't even use the name of a rich man. But we could say that it's a true story. In other words, this happens even in our day today. That the poor godly people rejected by men often die and go to heaven. And those who are rich often die and spend eternity in hell. But not all rich men go to hell and not all poor men go to heaven, as I've already stated. So therefore, we learn from this is that whatever position a man is in, he must come to Christ, whether he's rich or poor. Now, the discourse given to the Pharisees illustrates the hardness of their own heart, the hardness of these who were religious. They were unwilling to submit to God's word. They were unwilling to submit to Christ, even though they claimed to know the truth and they even sought to teach the truth. They thought that they were okay with God and that He had blessed them, and that they were justified by their own life, as we see there in verse 15, when it says, Those who justified themselves before men, but God knows your heart, that what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus points out that their justification before men is what? an abomination before God. See, they had rejected the preaching of John the Baptist, and now they are rejecting the preaching of Jesus. And he clearly points out to them that this is an abomination for you to reject the gospel. And as a result, they will be cast into hell, even though they will plead how righteous they thought they were. 
There are many just like the Pharisees today. They look to their, quote, goodness. They trust in themselves, thinking that in some way or another they have earned God's approval, believing that God loves them because they have done some good things. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So Jesus points out quite clearly that no one is good, only God. We see that, of course, in Romans chapter 3, that there are none good, no, not one. And clearly we see that Jesus is re-emphasizing that here in this passage. Now I'm amazed at what some will say to have some kind of assurance of a loved one not being in hell. They would say, well, surely they did something good. They will look everywhere for evidence of some good thing that they might have done to assure themselves that they were not in hell. I can remember years ago, a tragic accident happened my senior in high school. And I remember someone saying, well, we went through his wallet of a young man who died, and we found a little piece of paper that said that he loved God. And that was enough for them to think that he went to heaven. It didn't matter what kind of life he had lived. He had that slip of paper in his wallet that said he loved God. Well, the question is, did that love of God bear fruit in his life? to where people saw that he had a true saving relationship with God that showed that he had been truly born again. Now, if someone is born again, there will be evidence. There will be fruit. Knowing a person had a living relationship with Christ is the only real comfort at their death. Knowing that they loved God and lived for God and trusting in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, and that they repented of their sins and looked to Christ, that is what brings comfort in the death of a loved one. This is what gives us comfort, that there's no hope in hearing that that person may have had a perfect Sunday school attendance, or that they read the Bible through every year, or they even memorized the catechisms, or even could pray lengthy prayers. None of those things are evident of having a relationship with Christ. Only one who has put their hope in Christ, as the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Believing in the life death, and resurrection, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is Emmanuel, that is what saves a man from their sins. And this is what the Pharisees lacked. And they hardened their heart against these very truths. Now second, we see the condition of the rich man. We see just how wicked he was. Now, most Jews 
saw prosperity as a sign of God's blessing upon their life. It was a sign to them that they had been brought into the covenant thinking that God's favor upon them as far as their riches were concerned was evident that God loved them. Therefore, those who had unfavorable thoughts, they had unfavorable thoughts of the poor because they saw the poor as being outside of God's covenant. Now, Jesus often addressed this very error And he pointed out the correct teaching, and that's what he does in this particular passage. He presents this rich man, but he gives him no name whatsoever. Now, of course, the Pharisees saw this as a great dishonor to this rich man, because surely they thought he should have had a name since he was rich and he was a Jew and he was very special to them. But when the rich man dies, we see that he perishes with his name. He is forgotten. All of his wealth is given to someone else. He is not recognized by God, nor is his name written in the Lamb's book of life. There are those here on earth who think that they are very important, who find out one day just how unimportant they are. You know that? A lot of people today, they think they're somebody. They're in positions of authority and they think they are great men. But one day they will stand before a holy God and they will learn that they are now God's objects of wrath in eternity. Now notice how Jesus describes him in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, and far sumptuously, every fair sumptuously every day. Now, we could say that this was a sparkling, splendid, rich businessman. We could say in the eyes of the world that he lacked nothing. He had plenty food. He had servants setting his table. He was waited on hand and foot. He had guests at his table on a regular basis. He is described by what he had, what he wore, and what he ate. Now, a lot of people have that same mindset today. They think that if they have the right clothes, eat the right food, associate with the right people, then they have all that they need. Nothing else matters to them. But what is Jesus doing here? He's revealing the absurdity of that kind of thinking. That that kind of thinking is unbiblical. That such thinking does not bring a person eternal happiness. That such thinking clearly points out that that person is a fool. Thinking that what he has, what he wears, what he eats, makes you somebody is so foolish. 
how do you want to be described, reveals a lot about yourself. Do you see that? Now, one thing that we have today that I think is doing a lot of harm, more harm than good, I'm not saying it doesn't do any good, but I think it does more harm than good, is social media. It has given many the opportunity to display this particular mindset. And all I could say would be that I'm often embarrassed by it and seeing some of the things. I don't even have Facebook. Sometimes I get on my wife's. I can't even do that anymore because I lost her password. I think that's a blessing probably. But the mindset that people have is revealed in their social media often. See, those things that we often think are important are not important to God. They do not matter to God. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical status, because I have refused him. But the Lord does not see as man sees. For God looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, the important question in life are, do you know Jesus Christ savingly? Did you, do you live for Him daily? Do you walk in the path of righteousness? Do you seek to please God? Do you seek to worship and serve Him as He has commanded you to? See, those are the important questions that we must ask ourselves daily. Is there any sin in having all that this rich man had? Well, it's not sinful, as I've already mentioned, to be rich. No sin in wearing fine clothes. No sin in having your table full of food, as long as you're not wasteful of that food. And there's no sin in having good friends. But here Christ reveals that a man may have a great deal of wealth, pomp, pleasure in this world, and perish forever under the wrath and curse of God. Now we're not to infer, as some Jews did, that because someone is rich, that God loves him more than others. I mean, Scripture teaches how difficult it is for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God, does it not? And Scripture teaches us how dangerous riches are, how dangerous that they can be, and that they'll bring many temptations. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 24, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now there are those who said, well, the eye of a needle is speaking of a particular door in the wall at Jerusalem and the camel had to get on his knees to go through it. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that it is impossible 
impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, what he is stating there If that a man is trusting in himself, if a man is trusting in his riches, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He must repent and trust in Christ, in Christ alone to be entering the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and manna or money. He can't serve both, is what Jesus says. For he'll love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. And then Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and snares, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destructions and perdition. How true that is. There's not a single person in here who cannot probably think of someone in that condition who is wealthy and as a result of their wealth they have fallen into temptations and snares and into many foolish and harmful lusts and therefore drowned it in destruction and perdition. That's what riches can bring. Now again, I'm not teaching against riches. What I'm teaching is again is how you use your riches, what you do with your riches. That's what Jesus also is pressing upon us. And that this particular man, this rich man, because of how he dealt with his riches, was sinful. And as a result of that, he ended up in an everlasting hell. Now as we conclude this morning as I mentioned in the bulletin, that's an introduction to this particular story. But as we come to the end of it, we must examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves and we must ask some questions pertaining to what is stated here. Because all of us must one day stand before this living God who will judge both our hearts and our actions in that day to come. And we must be prepared. As I mentioned earlier, we never know when our life might instantly be over. Someone could walk out of these doors this morning and face judgment. Drop dead. But yet we cannot ignore that, even though we try to ignore that. People, as I mentioned earlier, are dying every single day. Today is the day of salvation is what the scripture says. And we must pray that the Spirit of God would work in a wonderful way. We must continue to pray as we look forward to this crusade that is coming up here in Brandon. Now we may not agree with every single thing that will take place, but what we must do is do everything that we can do to make sure that Biblical truth is expounded. And that's the reason why I've asked our church to have at least 20, if not more. I was so thankful yesterday to see 11 of our members at the meeting and that we're also able to have a meeting here and to train counselors. I had a goal of 20. I'm raising that goal to 30. That we will have at least 30 counselors show up because we need to be there to be able to explain the truth to the people that come to this crusade and those who seek to come to make a decision so that we might do everything possible to make sure that they have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and pressing the truth upon them. Because we have a responsibility 
to do so as the Scripture commands us to do so. And we must pray that God might be pleased to bring about an awakening just as He did in the 1850s there in North Ireland. Can God do that same thing today? Yes, He can. And we must pray that God would be pleased to do the same thing that He did back in 1850s there in the great Welch revival and bring many into the kingdom of God. It's heartbreaking. has been stated many times that 80% of the people in Rankin County in the Bible Belt of the South are unchurched. I just have a hard time believing that. But that's the statistics. 80% of the people in Rankin County are not faithfully attending a church. In other words, as Jesus said, the harvest is white unto harvest. It's full. And he, we must send those into the field to reap the harvest. So let us be faithful in that task. Even as we go out of these doors today, we need to pray that God would bring opportunities into our life to press upon people the truth that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and you will spend eternity in one of those two places. And you must decide for yourself. You must deal with your own spiritual relationship between you and God as to which place you will spend eternity. Let us be faithful to share the gospel with those that we come in contact with. And we must be faithful to pray that God would be pleased to do a great work of salvation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given us in clearly pointing out that there are two eternities, one that is in heaven and one that is in eternal hell. Do not allow us, Father, to dismiss these truths. But Father, I pray that they would weigh heavy upon our hearts this morning especially upon the hearts of those that sit here this morning who are unconverted. How we pray, Father, that your Spirit would drive these truths into their hearts, just as your Spirit did it in Brownlow North's life, in waking him up in that moment that he thought he was about to die, and bringing him to Christ to see that it profiteth so nothing unless he looked to Christ and Christ alone. May that be so today, Father. May you open the eyes by your Spirit of those who are unconverted to see that they need Christ and that they would repent and turn to Christ and trust in Him alone. And we pray also that you would be pleased, Father, to work in the lives of Christians to cause us to see the urgency the urgency of sharing the gospel with those that we come in contact with. For we know, Father, that minute by minute, hundreds are dying and entering into eternity. Cause us to be faithful, to be your ambassadors to Christ. And this we pray in Christ's name for His sake.